sobering numbers on how many American lives could be lost to the coronavirus. That was our real number, that 100,000 to 200,000. The pandemic has millions out of work. These are almost, you hate to say it, but almost depressionary uh, numbers for this. Controversy is the Pentagon helps battle the coronavirus. These hospital ships, Mercy and Comfort, are probably not the best places to treat coronavirus cases because as we've seen with the cruise ships and the aircraft carrier, the virus can rapidly spread aboard a ship. And what should governors expect from the federal government? The president does not have the authority to universally declare quarantine or stay at home. And it's the reason that they're working with the states to do that. With John Decker, Rachel Sutherland, and Chad Pergram, I'm Jared Halpern from Washington. As the COVID-19 pandemic spreads, it's becoming more difficult to find somebody not directly impacted by the virus. On Friday morning, the United States had more than 245,000 coronavirus cases and more than 6,000 deaths. 6,000 husbands and wives, moms and dads, brothers and sisters, friends, co-workers and neighbors. Those figures are no doubt higher now, depending on when you're listening to this. And over the next two months, the outlook is far more lethal. White House Coronavirus Task Force Coordinator Dr. Deborah Burks provided that stark reality at a briefing this week. This is a projection, and it's a projection based on using um, very much what's happened in Italy and then looking at all the models. Um, And so, as you saw on that slide, that was our real number, that 100,000 to 200,000. And we think that that is the range. We really believe and hope every day that we can do a lot better than that. In other words, with social distancing in place, those stay-at-home orders, businesses closed, schools shuttered, the best-case scenario under current projections is 100,000 Americans perishing from COVID-19-related illnesses, a range that more than doubles, even with strict social distancing in place. It does not assume 100% of Americans will do all they should, Burks added, and that is why she's optimistic that projection could fall. Dr. Anthony Fauci at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases says Americans should be prepared for that high death toll. The answer is yes. We need as as sobering a number as that is, we should be prepared for it. Is it going to be that much? I hope not. And I think the more we push on the mitigation, the less likelihood it would be that number. Another sobering number we saw this week is 6.6 million. That's how many Americans made initial unemployment benefit claims last week, twice as many as the week before. So in two weeks of this pandemic, 10 million Americans lost their jobs, putting new strain on households across the country. Here's another number, 200. That's how many Navy sailors on the aircraft carrier USS Theodore Roosevelt have tested positive or are suspected to be positive for COVID-19. The commanding officer of that ship has been removed after public pleas for help. Add to that the number 50, the number of governors who are now trying to match supply with demand, and some complaining they're bidding against each other for valuable medical resources. So we have segments this week on every single one of those numbers, but we start 
with the sobering figures from the White House. Fox News Radio's White House correspondent John Decker has been hearing from administration officials all week. The tone did change. Uh, sobering numbers that are being projected by uh, our health officials, the government's health officials, uh, anywhere from 100,000 to 240,000 fatalities associated with the coronavirus pandemic right here in the United States. And this comes uh, as we've just uh, uh, hit past one million cases, coronavirus cases globally. So those numbers, uh, no matter where you are and no matter where you stand on the political spectrum, they are sobering. And we we got a sense of that from the president this week. There has been criticism, not just this week, but in uh, the weeks leading up to this week, that the president was maybe downplaying the risk of COVID-19, wasn't taking it as seriously as other public health officials were. Has he answered some of that criticism this week about perhaps what the turning point for him was? Well, I think that a briefing the president received from his two health care advisors on the coronavirus task force really spelled it out to him. Dr. Deborah Burks, uh, who is the coordinator on the task force, and Dr. Anthony Fauci uh, from NIH, the world's leading authority on infectious diseases, they told the president in no uncertain terms, this is what we're projecting. And this is what we're projecting, Jared, even with the mitigation uh, factors that we'd like to employ throughout the country, even with social distancing, even with the lockdown orders that have been mandated by uh, 40 or so governors throughout the country, we still anticipate this many fatalities. Did you hear the the personal story the president told about a friend suffering from, from COVID-19? I mean, that, that was remarkable to, to sort of hear the personal, the, the president speak about it in such a personal tone. That often has uh, a big impact on the president is when someone in his world, in his orbit, uh, is impacted by uh, a policy or, in this case, by a pandemic. And, yes, the president uh, indicating that, indeed, he has a, a friend in New York. And, of course, New York is the epicenter, the hot spot for the coronavirus right now. Uh, that friend uh, apparently dealing with uh, treatment associated with the coronavirus, and apparently, according to the president, this particular individual, uh, whom he knows, uh, is in a coma. So it's it's really hit home for the president. The numbers themselves are uh, just daunting. Uh, but when you know somebody who's dealing with this personally, I think it it really uh, makes itself quite clear to the president that this is a real problem. He's still finding time, though, to, to sort of spar, if you want to call it that, at least publicly, uh, you know, call out some of these governors who he thinks are maybe asking for too much or not being cooperative. What 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 is the the communication here between governors, uh, you know, on the front lines in in this coronavirus task force? Well, the governors do have the um, ability and they call upon that ability to call uh, the vice president, Mike Pence, who's leading this task force. So if the governor of Washington state, who's a Democrat, has an issue as it relates to supplies, medical supplies that he needs, or the governor of Michigan uh, has supplies uh, that she needs, they can reach out directly to Vice President Pence. And uh, President Trump, despite that sparring that you're talking about with those two Democratic governors, uh, he has said that he has never told the vice president, uh, don't speak to uh, 
any Democratic governor or, for that matter, any public official who needs the help. And Vice President Pence, I mean, he I, I don't know when he sleeps uh, because this is an issue that has occupied, obviously, all of his time. It's occupied 99.9% of the president's time. And so, yes, uh, as you know, it's the president's way that if he's attacked, he uh, pushes back. Uh, but that being said, uh, he's made it clear that the vice president is working with the nation's governors and the uh, nation's mayors in terms of trying to get to them what they need. So it's kind of a words versus action kind of discrepancy. Yeah, I, I think so. It's in a way it's it's real life good cop, bad cop in a way, you know, so uh, the president mixes it up with. Uh, the Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, uh, and sends a very what the president might call himself a nasty letter to Chuck Schumer. At the same time, uh, you see that relations uh, apparently are uh, good between the president and the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, who is a Democrat, uh, who is refrained for the most part of directly criticizing President Trump and talking about his needs, his need for his needs for N95 face masks or for ventilators. He has, you know, refrained from getting into the personal attacks on on the administration. And, and to that point, even Schumer's office, Chuck Schumer's office, said that the day that that letter was sent out, the two uh, the two had a conversation with each other. So it does appear that things are a little bit different sometimes behind the scenes than than the public uh, reaction that that we get to read. Let's let's finish with this because the other impact of, of COVID nineteen and listen, the, the health impacts are significant and severe, and they could affect a great many number of Americans, either directly or indirectly. So too, it seems like will be the economic fallout. 10 million Americans now filing for unemployment initially over the last two weeks. What does the White House do about that? Well, these numbers are just unprecedented. Uh, You just spoke of them, 10 million uh, individuals uh, now out of a job. So one thing that the administration uh, is not only talking about, but they're doing something about, and that's this new $349 billion coronavirus rescue loan program for small businesses. It's now up and running, and this is a lifeline for many small businesses. It uh, allows those small businesses to apply for loans of up to $10 million. The interest rates are just 1%, and if you keep your employees on the payroll uh, over the course of the next three months, that $10 million loan uh, turns into a $10 million grant. You don't have to repay that loan. So that's uh, just one way that the administration is trying to make certain that the economy, which already is cratering, uh, doesn't you know get even worse and throw uh, more problems into trying to get back out uh, from the place we're in right now once the coronavirus pandemic ultimately is over. And that's going to be the question, how long it might take to recover. I know the president's been very optimistic about getting the economy back up roaring again. But but to your point, uh, these are unprecedented levels of of, uh, unemployment numbers. It is unclear if businesses are going to be able to rebound as quickly as the president hopes. And I suppose uh, that's going to have a, a major impact come November. Well, we'll see. We'll see where we are. You know, uh, I I share the president's optimism. I, too, am hopeful that we're back to normal in a relatively short amount of time. The president has mentioned June the 1st as a a date in which he feels that uh, we can get uh, back to normal to a certain extent. I don't know if that's overly optimistic. 
Uh, but if, if indeed we can get this health crisis behind us, there was nothing wrong with the U.S. economy. It was zooming right along, and we had 3.5% unemployment right before this hit us. Uh, then, you know, the fundamentals are there for the U.S. economy uh, to get back close to the place it was, and, and we'll see. The coronavirus uh, pandemic, obviously, is not the president's fault, and so the criticism that has been leveled at the president, often coming from Democrats, is it's his response to the coronavirus pandemic, and, and obviously that's what will, voters will ultimately have to judge. Uh, in November is whether the administration, whether the president responded uh, in the appropriate ways to this pandemic. We're a long way away from that. Uh, right now, we're just trying to get past the health crisis. I think we've learned over the last, uh, well, at least the first four months of this year, first three months of this year, how, how quickly events can change. Uh, John Decker yes. uh, with us as well. Thanks so much. Uh, we'll check in next week from a safe distance as always. That's right. Thanks a lot, Jared. Have a good weekend. I haven't left my house much this week. I hope you haven't either. Every infectious disease expert stresses the need to distance ourselves. 30 days to slow the spread is the current White House guidance. Now, that's not to say I've been a shut-in. The family still takes daily walks with the dog. I was at the grocery store Friday morning very quickly. In those short trips, though, it is difficult to remember where I am. The usual daytime traffic here in the Washington area is gone. Most stores are closed. A supermarket, one of the few places even allowed to welcome customers. So it shouldn't be surprising the economy is taking a hit. But even seasoned economists were stunned to see how severe that hit is. This week, the Labor Department reported the most recent week's worth of initial unemployment claims. People applying for benefits for the first time. That number, 6.6 million. There's no precedent for that. There's no period in time that compares. The week before, the number was more than 3 million. Before last month, the record number of weekly claims was 695,000. That was set back in 1982. So that's the context. What does it mean? I asked Fox Business Network correspondent Edward Lawrence. There, there is no gauge for this. This has not happened uh, in the history of them keeping these records. So those are huge numbers. And it did spill over into the employment numbers. Now, we knew that the jobs report coming out uh, Friday would be disastrous. We did not know how disastrous it would be. 701,000 jobs uh, lost in the month of March was, was not a figure any on anyone's radar. Uh, they were coming in much lower than that. Now, the unemployment rate ticked up to 4.4%. But again, this does not include those two weeks that you're talking about where there's 10 million new people filing for unemployment. So these numbers will grow. What is the unemployment rate then? So the unemployment rate currently is at 4.4%. And this is the first time in the last 24 months that the unemployment rate is over 4%. So it's not as reflective uh, in what some people believe is actually happening out there. They think the next job report number is going to come in uh, north of 10%, is what the Boston Fed president, um, Eric Rosengren, has said. In one month, it'll jump to double digits. 
in one month. That's what they believe. And, and these are these are almost you hate to say, it, but almost depressionary uh, numbers for this. But this is not a situation where the economy was having problems going into this. This is a situation where the government basically shut down a booming economy, uh, and that could be seen in the jobs reports. I mean, the average hourly wages actually went up uh, in this jobs reports three point one percent over the past twelve months. It went up eleven cents in the month of March, and that shows an extremely strong economy coming into this and almost no inflation. So what is th- th- these numbers? You know, we, we focus a lot on unemployment. Uh, how important are these numbers as we try and gauge what's happening to the economy as a result of the coronavirus pandemic? Well, these numbers are important. They do look back, though. These numbers are important to show the trend on where it's going. Uh, this shows how deep, how bad uh, this could get. Now, some of the things are, will mitigate it, meaning the loan program, the small business loan program that has uh, started on Friday, that loan program will is retroactive. It goes back to February 15th. So that means employers can go back and rehire some of the people that were fired or, or laid off in this employment, uh, this last jobs report. So the 701,000. So, so, yes, we have to figure out exactly how much that will affect or offset. Uh, you know, the, the exploding, it's an exponentially exploding number on how much uh, they're giving out throughout the day on Friday uh, of this loan money going directly to small businesses that will pay for salaries, they'll pay for rent, it'll pay for mortgage or lease to keep those businesses open. Uh, and, and it's important because it could be forgiven. So if a small business owner keeps the average monthly salary, the same as they had in 2019, then the loan is forgiven. So it's basically money given to these businesses. Now, these loans cover two and a half months of payroll? Uh, Eight weeks. Uh, Okay. I can't do the quick math in my head, but eight weeks, yes. Eight weeks. So what happens in nine weeks if everything's still shut down? You know, and that is something where we're looking at that phase four stimulus. People are starting to talk about it. Uh, Secretary Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin says that if the entire uh, three hundred plus billion dollars of this small loan program has used up, he will go back to Congress and ask for more money. But they've been talking about now a stimulus. So this is just sort of a relief or an aid package for the next eight weeks. But now they're starting to talk about maybe a stimulus to boost the economy. You know, the real game changer on this, according to um, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the that become famous name in all of this, the, the head of NIH infectious diseases. He says the game changer will be when there's a vaccine. That vaccine won't come probably till next year. So that means what we're doing now on the health side of it is looking for mitigation of this. And really, the economy can't start up again in earnest unless people are satisfied and have no fear of congregating together. That is in restaurants, if you're going out to eat. That is in line at the airport, uh, if you're going to get on an airplane to go somewhere. You're going to get on an airplane to go somewhere, sitting next to somebody. So the real economy can't sort of take off again until folks are, are you know, that concern is gone for people in their minds. Now, treatments, you know, they're looking at possibly treatments that would handle this virus and reduce the death toll. Um, but until they can get the health aspect of it, the economy is going to be struggling. So Edward mentioned additional stimulus. And remember, last month, Congress approved the president signed that $2.2 trillion rescue package. But even with lawmakers now keeping their distance from D.C., there are negotiations over what should happen next, a fourth phase of relief from the coronavirus. Fox News congressional correspondent Chad Pergram is hearing what that next could look like. 
The immediate need seems pretty obvious. You look at the unemployment numbers, and I know we've talked about them uh, already on this show, but 10 million people recently unemployed in just the last couple of weeks. You know, a, a couple of things that the phase three bill did was provide direct payments. It could be a couple of weeks before people see that money. It enhanced unemployment insurance, but those are short-term solutions to what appears to be perhaps a longer-term problem. And some of this might also be, you know, the Republicans on Capitol Hill saying, let's take the temperature and really weigh it because we are going to have to spend another two, maybe four trillion dollars down the road. And we want to make sure that there is buy-in from our side, meaning that they want to understand and, 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 you know, have these Republicans start to hear from their constituents what they need. And that way that there is more consensus overall. Uh, you know, it, it probably benefits the Democrats, at least politically in the House, to go ahead and say we should do more because, well, they don't control the Senate. They're trying to win back the Senate and they're trying to defeat the president in the general election this fall. So to give any perception that they're not really ahead of the game uh, and the House Democrats are, that's the political advantage there. Whereas I think Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy, it's obvious something else is going to have to be done, whatever form that takes. But he needs to get people on board. They both need to get people on board. And that probably has to be demonstrated by me. The, the, the theme that, that we've had in, in this uh, presidency of President Trump is that he often dictates uh, what it is that Republicans are going to be for. Uh, generally, Republicans are not really for spending in a lot of money on, on stimulus-type packages. Just go back to the last decade, how that played out. But President Trump this week urged Congress to spend $2 trillion on infrastructure. Speaker Pelosi this week I guess, re-unveiled an infrastructure plan that's probably in that price range as well. So you have Speaker Pelosi, the top Democrat, President Trump, uh, urging bipartisanship on, on, on a stimulus package of infrastructure. Given that, given that unity, what's the likelihood that, that folks like Mitch McConnell or, or even Kevin McCarthy are on board with, with that type of investment? You know, it's so hard to take the political temperature right now, too, because, you know, you can't see body language. You have to go talk to people in the halls and, and kind of get their read and things. And that's so much more challenging to do right now. So that's part of it. And the fact that everybody is spread to the four winds, uh, speaking from their kitchens and, and living rooms and things, people don't really know. Now, that said, uh, maybe it truly is infrastructure week, finally, or infrastructure quarter or whatever it is. Now, that presumes a couple of things. That presumes that, and now again, by the time you would actually be able to have people go out and work again, if it were, it's not a complete catastrophe, maybe you're able to implement some of these things if you were to pass something, let's say, in the next six to eight weeks, and maybe at the earliest have people working on actual infrastructure projects by August or September. That's really kind of moving fast here. I should note the size of that that the president's talking about. Of course, the president addressed infrastructure in his State of the Union message uh, this winter. And Richard Shelby, who's the chair of the Appropriations Committee in the Senate uh, from Alabama, he told me shortly after the speech, uh, he said he thought it would be great. And he said, I think we need to spend at least a trillion. Well, this is double that. Well, the issue is always going to be as well how that money's spent, right? Everybody could agree on a price tag of, say, between one and two trillion dollars. But President Trump has talked about very traditional brick and mortar type infrastructure, in addition to some 5G, some rural broadband issues. Speaker Pelosi is talking about broadband, but she's also talking about clean water projects. Uh, she's talking about green energy, uh, overhauling uh, infrastructure to match 
uh, climate needs, that's going to be where, where this is really fought, right? Not maybe on the dollar amount, but on where those dollars go. The types of projects, and this is where Mitch McConnell said, you know, we're not going to allow Democrats to use this as an opportunity to recalibrate, to restructure, you know, ideologically what government is. You talk about green energy projects and so on. Now, that said, what this is really about is negotiation, a negotiation that's going on from afar in the press, uh, where both sides start to lay down their markers. The president's talking infrastructure over here. The speaker's talking about green energy over here. Neither side wants to at least appear to their bases like they're, they're moving toward one another. And then at the end of the day, both sides probably accept some of the stuff that the other one wants just because they have to get a deal. And think about as critical as it was to get a deal over the past two weeks, Jared, but how critical it will be we get down the train tracks and there's another three, six, nine, ten million out of work or whatever the figure is, however devastating it is, and that they are, are forced to kind of work together and get that agreement. And it's probably a bill that everybody really holds their nose and votes for. Chad, it was good to see you again, even if it was from across the Potomac. Thank you, Jared. Hang on. <laughs> Controversy in the Defense Department as the coronavirus outbreak intensifies. I'm Rachel Sutherland. Sailors gathered to say goodbye as Captain Brett Crozier left the U.S. aircraft carrier Theodore Roosevelt after he was relieved of command for allegedly leaking a memo that sounded the alarm about a growing number of cases on the ship, now docked in Guam. Acting Secretary of the Navy Thomas Modley says Crozier created panic. That information needs to be shared through proper channels. And it also needs to be protected because sometimes the the information, if it gets into the wrong channels and the wrong hands, it it creates a lot of alarms. That information needs to be shared through proper channels. And it also needs to be protected because sometimes the the information, if it gets into the wrong channels and the wrong hands, it it creates a lot of alarms. Modley said he didn't take removing Captain Crozier lightly as it was one of the hardest decisions he has made. And he said it was not an act of retribution. At last count, at least 100 sailors had tested positive for COVID-19. The Navy is in the process of taking sailors off the ship. Some will have to remain on board to protect sensitive military hardware. There's also confusion over what two Navy hospital ships are doing on the east and west coasts. The USNS Mercy in Los Angeles and the Comfort in New York were never intended to treat coronavirus cases, but so far very few other patients have been transferred, partly because of red tape. Also, in a reversal, the Pentagon now says the Javits Center in New York will start accepting coronavirus patients. Lucas Tomlinson covers the Pentagon for Fox News. The Javits Center has 3,000 beds, so that's three. that would be the equivalent of uh, two of the largest hotel rooms in New York, just as a little uh, tidbit there. In fact, a 3,000-bed hospital makes the Javits Center now one of the largest hospitals in the United States. Uh, There are ventilators there, uh, dozens of them. However, nobody is satisfied, certainly not Governor Cuomo in New York, certainly not Mayor de Blasio, that there's enough ventilators to potentially treat all the patients that are going to start being sent there. We understand that uh, the USS Mercy and the USS Comfort are on the east and west coast. And the last check, the Comfort had, what, a few patients. I mean, we knew from the very beginning that these hospital ships were not going to be taking coronavirus patients, but we're hearing from some of the hospitals, they're not too happy about that. And there seems to be a lot of red tape for getting the patients from the hospitals to the ships. 
There sure is, Rachel. Recall, comfort was not supposed to arrive in New York until the middle of this month. And as the president pointed out last weekend when she set sail, the hospital ship is getting, was getting underway three to four weeks early. That being said, there are certainly a lot of people scratching their heads, raising eyebrows uh, in New York this morning, wondering why there's only 20-odd patients on a 1,000-bed hospital. You mentioned the red tape. Right now, the Pentagon and another reversal is saying that patients don't have to now be transferred from the hospital directly to the hospital ship Comfort to the pier. They're going to start doing some screening on the pier next to the vessel with the hope to relieve some of that burden. But certainly, it's, a, it's embarrassing for the Navy when uh, this massive warship, which, excuse me, with this massive hospital ship that arrived in New York, that much fanfare, you saw the imagery mm-hmm. on Monday, you know, Saturday, the departure from Norfolk, the president, the defense secretary flew down to Norfolk. It's the first time the president left the White House in many days to see the hospital ship off. Monday morning, she comes to the New York Harbor. It's the first time Comfort had arrived in New York since the 9-11 attacks to provide, as the name suggests, comfort. Uh, yet days go by. And at one point, they were in the first interview the captain had with Ed Henry. He said no patients were on board on Tuesday. By Wednesday, there were only three patients. And overnight, the Navy is now saying only 20 patients on a 1,000-bed hospital ship with over 800 medical staff. But of course, there's a lot of concern. You've seen what happened on the aircraft carrier Theodore Roosevelt Mm. with close to 200 cases of coronavirus on board. These hospital ships, Mercy and Comfort, are probably not the best places to treat coronavirus cases because as we've seen with the cruise ships and the aircraft carrier, the virus can rapidly spread aboard a ship. Uh, Speaking of the hospital ship Mercy on the West Coast, uh, Mercy arrived in Los Angeles uh, last Friday and has only accepted 15 patients, five were treated, five are now uh, been released from the hospital. The big question is, how long does it take to get into the bloodstream, get into the workflow? If if you're a hospital in either New York or Los Angeles, you've been doing this for decades. It's not normal to send patients away. Yes, they get transferred to other hospitals at times, but to just say, hey, you're now going to go to this hospital ship, that's a whole different flow. There's a lot of red tape. In fact, there are reports that it's, you know, a 14-page questionnaire to, to transfer a patient. But the question is, if you're a gunshot victim in East New York, in South Bronx, in Harlem, are, is that ambulance now going to just speed to Pier 90 in Manhattan's west side, or are you going to go to the hospital? Th- these are tricky things. But to, to be fair to the Navy, the, the plan was to shoot first and to aim later. These hospital ships arrived very quickly. Recall Comfort was in maintenance in Norfolk for yes. a long period of time. It wasn't supposed to be ready for the till the middle of April. And now that that hospital ship arrived so quickly, I think they're still working everything out. But clearly, optics, both good and bad, are a big part of the story right now. And here's, here's another problem, too. When you look at the, the example of the gunshot victim, how do you know that someone who's been shot doesn't have coronavirus? And It's a huge question, Rachel. It's a huge question. And it's, and now we're learning that some of the biggest ways this virus is spread is through asymptomatic people. There's, there's reports in the last few days. In fact, Dr. Fauci on Fox and Friends Friday said that this virus can be transmitted through the air by talking to somebody. It's not just through coughing, sneezing, 
so there's still so many questions. So it's why they call it a novel coronavirus. There's so much about this virus we don't know. But we've seen, sadly, how the, the, the virus has spread aboard cruise ships and a U.S. Navy aircraft carrier. Right. Let's talk about the USS Roosevelt. And I know that you'd been reporting, just really working hard on that story, and even had broke the news that there were far more many sailors in that ship testing positive than than we were hearing. We kept getting different numbers, and it's like, well, Lucas's numbers are higher than other people's numbers. What's going on? And it turns out that Captain Crozier on that ship was sending out the alarm, I guess, to the San Francisco Chronicle. Initially, you picked up on it that there were there were up to a hundred, if not more, that tested positive, and he was trying to get the word out. It's saying that we don't want uh, sailors to die. And then he ends up relieved of duty. And then, I don't know if this will work, I'll try to play sound, but when he exited the ship, uh, this is the reception or the uh, the outgoing that he received from sailors. By all accounts, he was a very popular commander. I've spoken to family members, uh, crew members on board. Rachel, and this was a beloved captain. He did raise alarm bells. Uh, that ship went to Vietnam in early March, uh, along with a uh, guided missile cruiser, and over 6,000 sailors went ashore in Vietnam, which of course borders China. And by early March, uh, one can make the case might not be the best time to be going ashore in Asia as the virus was rapidly spreading uh, through Asia and was starting to spread around uh, uh, Europe as well and globally. The captain did what he felt was best for the ship. He wrote a four-page letter pleading with top Navy and Pentagon brass to offload 90% of the crew. Keep in mind, the warship has two nuclear reactors on board, mm-hmm. dozens of F-18 Super Hornets on board, laser-guided bombs. This is a ship ready for war. And she was on deployment. This was not a pleasure cruise. That ship was just doing round-the-clock flight ops in the South China Sea to send a message to Beijing. But this skipper, as the the cases started to mount, and Fox News were the first to break the story that there were cases on board. Uh, Mm -hmm. We were the first with that on air. There were three cases on board that rapidly went to uh, 20 to 30 to over 38 last weekend. And, of course, now the Navy says there's over 100 cases on board. And officials privately tell me, there's another hundred that are suspected of having the virus. Only 30% of the 5,000 member crew has been tested right now. So mm-hmm. the acting Navy secretary said in his press conference on Thursday, announcing that he had fired Captain Crozier as commanding officer of TR, said to expect hundreds more cases. The biggest problem is uh, Roosevelt is now peer siding Guam and they're frantically trying to scramble to get hotel rooms for these crew members. But the way the Navy sees it is not everybody can leave, and there's not a ready aircraft carrier crew just sitting around back in San Diego or Norfolk to fly over and relieve everybody. Uh, But certainly there was a disconnect between the the captain's urgency and what Top Brass was saying, in essence, continue mission, isolate them. But officials tell me what was confusing for the crew members on board where they're looking at the CDC guidelines on social distancing. And of course, how do you social distance in the reactor compartment on a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier on a flight deck launching fighter jets? The the accusation is the captain went around the chain of command. There's certainly evidence of that, but he felt like he did was right because in his mind, if any of his crew members died on board, he knew his career was toast. So he knew the risks in sending out this letter 
officials tell me that he thought his career was toast either way. That's why he made this urgent plea, not just to put sailors in gymnasiums, which is what some of the Navy advised him to do when he got ashore. How would that go in? You know, how would that match CDC guidelines? The idea was we need hotel rooms to get ashore. Now there's a lot of questions. Why wasn't that happening more urgently? Yeah, and real quickly, wrapping it up, I mean, they are trying to get the sailors off of the Roosevelt and into hotel rooms in Guam, but uh, an amount, uh, how many will have to be staying behind because of this defensive equipment, including a nuclear reactor? Right. There are two nuclear reactors on board this massive aircraft carrier. About 3,000 sailors are going to be offloaded uh, this weekend. Uh, that leaves 2,000 more. In fact, you know, you have a deployed aircraft carrier that was supposed to be in the region, keeping watch on China. And not to say there isn't firepower in the rest of the strike group. You, you know, TR does have guided missile destroyers and a cruiser in the strike group armed with hundreds of uh, Tomahawk cruise missiles. So not to say there's no firepower, but we only have three deployed aircraft carriers right now, and one is in port. Uh, the acting Navy Secretary says for the next couple weeks, that's a major blow to U.S. national security. Okay. Well, Lucas, thanks for joining us. Thanks for all your good, hard reporting and uh, stay well and stay safe. Thank you so much for having me, Rachel. Most of us understand how supply and demand works. The greater the demand, the higher the prices, particularly if supply is low. But what if the supply is essential medical equipment, like ventilators, surgical and medical masks, or personal protective equipment? The demand is increasing by the day. The coronavirus is present in every state. Deaths are increasing. Governors are trying to ensure hospitals can continue to treat patients and treat those patients without undue risk to the front line medical workers, doctors and nurses, all of the heroes continuing to show up and care for the most vulnerable. Here's how New York Governor Andrew Cuomo described it. It's like being on eBay with 50 other states bidding on a ventilator. And you see the bid go up because California bid, Illinois bid, Florida bid, New York bids, California rebids. That's literally what we're doing. President Trump has used the Defense Production Act to increase supply, but his complaints states are asking for unreasonable requests. His senior advisor and son-in-law, Jared Kushner, said this about the national stockpile of critical medical infrastructure. You have in instances where in cities they're running out, but the state still has a stockpile. And the notion of the federal stockpile was it's supposed to be our stockpile. It's not supposed to be state stockpiles that they then use. So we're encouraging the states to make sure that they're assessing the needs, they're getting the data from their local, uh, local uh, situations, and then trying to fill it with the supplies that we've given them. Michael Levitt has experience with disaster and public health needs at both the state and federal level. He was Health and Human Services Secretary during President George W. Bush's second term. Before that, he was Administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency. From 1993 to 2003, he was Governor of Utah. Let me just start at the top, and let's talk about the roles. And I think it resolves in the context of that information. The federal government has a vital role. Uh, there are things that they can do that no one else can. Examples, the development of vaccines and antivirals. Only the federal government can take charge of that. States would not, if we had different states doing different things, it would not work well. The second is collecting money, tax dollars, and being able to distribute it where it's needed. 
the federal government's been doing that a lot and frankly, quite effectively. Uh, the third would be creating a sense of situational awareness, gathering information from states and various locations and different organizations, creating a picture, sharing that with the, the, the all interested constituencies and then coordinating the response based on that information. Only the federal government can do that effectively. Now, the federal government has taken on the, the, the role of uh, stockpiling. Uh, I was involved deeply in that, in creating those stockpiles and knowing their purpose. They were created not just for pandemics. They were created for large natural disasters like hurricanes or tornadoes or earthquakes. They were created for terrorism events. But the stockpile, the federal stockpile, cannot be seen as the, as the basic way in which America supplies to its citizens uh, various uh, goods. Uh, it's just not big enough. No stockpile is sufficient. It should be used for covering hot spots where it's necessary. That may give some insight as to how that's, uh, uh, where the confusion is. I think if, if uh, uh, Jared Kushner is saying it's the federal stockpile, they are federal stockpiles, but their job is to use that stockpile to be able to cover hotspots and places where a state might not have sufficient supply. Now, in a pandemic, that's a problem because everyone has insufficient supply. Right, and we've heard from governors in hotspots. Governor Cuomo, for instance, has talked about one of the, the problems right now is you have 50 states bidding against each other for the same resources and his suggestion and other governor's suggestions have been the federal government should be doing the, all the bidding. They should be collecting everything and then distributing it. Is that feasible? And should we have, you know, Utah competing with New York, competing with Florida, competing with Louisiana for, for these vital resources? No, there has to be a better system than that. But candidly, in the middle of a crisis is likely not the time for us to be figuring that out. Uh, we're going to have to get through this uh, crisis. I, I can say that there are ways, for example, with ventilators. We're not going to see every city in America having a hotspot at the same moment. And so there will be, I think, assets that can be moved from hotspot to hotspot. We're seeing New York as a very important one right now, but they will peak in a couple of weeks, and we're already seeing the early stages in some other cities that will likely become hotspots. And some of that equipment, particularly ventilators, uh, there needs to be a means by which FEMA, who would be the logical organization to coordinate this effort, would move them from place to place. Let me have you put on your uh, governor's hat for a minute, too, because I, I want to talk about uh, social distancing policies. The, the president, the White House, the coronavirus task force this week extended this uh, slow the spread campaign now 30 days to slow the spread. That takes us through the month of April. Um, most states at this point have various forms of, of shelter in home orders. Some uh, have criminal penalties associated with them. Um, as a governor who is responsible for keeping people employed, how do you balance the public health concerns with the economy? I mean, you've seen 10 million people now in this country over the last couple of weeks file initial unemployment claims. Let's acknowledge that while this is happening at some level, everywhere at the same time, it's not happening in the same proportion 
in every place and that every situation is a bit different. Let's also acknowledge that uh, or make the uh, differentiate authority and bully pulpit. Uh, the truth is the president does not have the authority to universally declare quarantine or stay at home. And it's the reason that they're working with the states to do that. That authority, that constitutional power resides in the states. Now, the president can have great influence. It goes back to this idea of being able to create, create situational awareness that only the federal government can gain by collecting information from the states and uh, then being able to coordinate that in some rational way. So I think what we're going to see, not just in the near term, but in the long term, we're going to see that the coronavirus continues to flare up in different places, and we have to become better at figuring out where those are early so that we can begin to create what I'll refer to as, uh, as intermittent uh, social distancing uh, implementation at different levels. Uh, for example, in New York, it may be a bit different in upstate New York than it is right in the, in the city. It may be different in Kansas than it is in New Orleans. Uh, but that's the reason that we have local health officials making those decisions. If one person made the decision nationwide to close the schools, they probably would get it wrong. Now, there may be points in time where that makes a lot of sense and in, in, in that if we're trying to contain but we have now moved away from containment and we're in mitigation and we have to be able to uh, deal with that balance that you've talked about in time right now we're doing a very important thing and that we're trying to dramatically mitigate the impact of this uh, as we get a little further out and we begin to see that this is ongoing we can't keep the economy uh, shut forever what would you um, uh, let me finish with this, because there are a lot of questions about timeline uh, in your experience. What should Americans be preparing for before? I mean, I, I guess the only way to say it is life returns to normal. Well, I, I think we have to acknowledge that if you understand viruses and how they work, once a virus like the coronavirus is in the wild, uh, it, it is a very difficult and long process. Uh, to bring it uh, in, under control. You can think about viruses like the, the measles or the mumps or whooping cough and think about how long those have existed. Uh, being able to, to, uh, to control a virus requires that essentially it dies off because it's not able to find new victims. Uh, and, and that happens when more than 50% of the entire population has had it, developed antibodies to it, and therefore it begins to, to die off. That takes time. Anyone who sees this as a six-month one-and-done uh, is not seeing the right picture. Uh, this is a problem that over time we will have to learn to manage. It's a new risk that is evident now in the world, and we're having to learn more about it and figure out what we can do and what we can't do. Uh, we will return to normal, but it won't be the same normal we had before. Uh, we may have several years where we're learning to contend with the coronavirus uh, as a risk in our life. I appreciate the, uh, the honesty. I think people need to hear that at a time like this. Uh, Mr. Governor, Mr. Secretary, thank you very much for the time. Thank you for having me.
That will do it for the From Washington podcast this week. And I know it has been a difficult week, or at least another week testing our new normal. More and more states and school districts have announced indefinite closures and abrupt end to the academic year. Turns out I have some experience with that. I didn't actually finish the seventh grade, at least not in the traditional way. Same with my sister. She was a fourth grader that year. We were living in Grand Forks, North Dakota in the spring of 1997. The Red River flooded. It devastated Grand Forks and East Grand Forks, Minnesota, and other communities up and down the river. The city was underwater. Homes and businesses destroyed, and obviously the schools were closed. My family lived several miles away on the Air Force Base, but our school was still closed along with the rest of the district. This was before online education. There were no Zoom classrooms or email assignments. As I recall, parents adapted. Lesson plans were created. It wasn't a health emergency, so us kids could still socialize, give our folks some space during the day. But I've thought about those weeks recently, watching a community rally and rebuild and return to normal. And it gives me hope as we watch our own communities ravaged by a totally new kind of disaster. My newly homeschooled son had some thoughts too. Are we supposed to leave the house? Uh, no. Nope. When can we leave the house? After this thing's over. What if we have to go to the grocery store? Oh, well, if you're buying one or two things, you're n- you can't go. You can only go. You can only go if you're buying a lot of stuff. What about washing our hands? <clears throat> oh yeah, that's definitely important. How long do you wash your hands for? About 20 seconds. Are you doing okay staying in the house? <clears throat> yep, I am. I'm a little bit bored, but that's okay. Okay, buddy. Next week, we will continue to hold your government accountable as small business loans are processed and taxpayers begin to see direct relief. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay in touch with those you care about. For all of us at Fox News Radio, I'm Jared Halpern from Washington. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.